Well, good evening. Grateful for uh, this opportunity. We just uh, finished a few days with some uh, brethren in Moundsville, and uh, grateful to be up in this area once again. This is not the first time I have preached in Pittsburgh. Uh, before my wife and I were married over 33 years ago, we actually stayed here for several months and uh, worked a little bit with the church that then met in Penn Hills. And uh, things have changed uh, quite a bit, of course, uh, since then. But uh, we're always grateful for the opportunity to uh, come and, and be with brethren here. Thankful uh, to God, of course, for uh, giving these opportunities. And I, I hope as we discuss some of these issues, uh, I consider to be extremely important, vital, really, to our spiritual welfare. At, uh, we, we take this in the manner in which uh, we intend to present this. Uh, I realize that authority is one of those words that in our modern culture is uh, not one that people like to hear very much. And that's because uh, we tend to buck against what we consider to be bad authority. But the reality of bad authority doesn't mean that there's no authority. And uh, we need the authority of God and we need to understand some basic foundational principles about that. I am a building blocks kind of a person. I like to start at the foundation and then build up to understand why we do what we do. And I like to talk about these issues in ways that I hope, at least my goal, is so that we have better conversations about why we do what we do. My purpose is not to say that I'm going to answer every question that's, that's possibly uh, to be asked. I, I don't I'm not going to pretend to do, be able to do that. Uh, but at the same time, there are ways that we can think about these uh, issues in authority that I, I hope will help us uh, better grasp these principles and have better conversations about them. When I talk about uh, the authority of God, I like to talk about uh, four pillars of, of authority, uh, four things that, that I think are really foundational to everything else uh, that we are doing. Number one is that God is the creator. And of course, uh, Genesis chapter 1 tells us that. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And, you know, as the creator, he has the right to tell us what to do, to tell us how to think, how to live, how to act, how to walk and talk and dress and everything else. God has that inherent right because he is the creator. And uh, other passages, of course, uh, will, will show us that. Uh, secondly, is that Christ is king. I'm going to spend more time talking about that in the second session, but I do want to draw your attention to Isaiah 52 and verse 7 as a foundational passage for the things that we are discussing and, and talking about here uh, these few days. Isaiah 52 and verse 7, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. Now you might recognize that particular passage as being quoted in Romans the 10th chapter. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. And the context there where he's talking about the fact that uh, the gospel needs to be preached because how can someone believe if they haven't heard and how can they hear if, the, if no one's going to tell them? And so it's in that context. But notice that the things being proclaimed, good news, there's gospel right there, the, the peace, the happiness, the salvation, and your God 
reigns. It is part of the gospel message that Jesus Christ is king. And that, of course, is going to emphasize his authority, his rulership. He has the right as the king, and we are his subjects. We need to be listening to him. We'll, spend, we'll say more about that later. The third thing is that uh, the Holy Spirit is the revealer of God's mind. And we can think about that from 1 Corinthians, the second chapter. And uh, again, just want to reference that for, for a moment. How can I know what you think? unless you tell me somehow what you think. How can you know what I think unless I tell you somehow what I think? How can we know the mind of God? How can we know what God thinks unless He somehow reveals that? And that's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit is the revealer of the mind of God. And so again, 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 13, uh, right in through there, it's what the Holy Spirit has revealed. We have the mind of God, but it's because He's revealed it uh, to us. And so what we have to be careful about doing is presuming upon the mind of God, thinking that God must think something is okay or whatever when we don't have any warrant to think that. And again, we'll talk more about that. Fourth peg in this is that the mankind is simply unable to be his own authority. Uh, it is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. Jeremiah 10 and verse 23 says, there's a way that seems right to a man, the ends are over the ways of death, Proverbs 14 and verse 12. Every time we try to take the authority for ourselves, uh, we mess it up. And uh, we're the ones who are guilty of sin, not God. And so God is the one, He's the, really the only one who has the authority, the right then to tell us what to do. And I want to tell you right up front here that that is also true of the grace of God. I realize that sometimes people uh, try to pit authority against grace. You, you spend time talking about authority and that diminishes grace or something to that effect. But I want you to understand that without authority, there would be no grace. Grace can only come from one who has the right to give it. If, if God had no authority, there would be no ability for Him to give grace. Mark, Mark 2 is a good example of that, that when Jesus uh, is there healing and, and the, the paralyzed man is let down through the roof and He sees their faith and, and uh, He says, your sins are forgiven. And then, of course, they grumble about that. Well, he says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say to this man, arise, take up your bed, and go home. But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralyzed man, get up. So what I'm, what I'm getting at there is that even the ability to give grace has to come from someone who has the power, the authority to grant it. I don't have that ability in that sense. In other words, I can't say to you, I'm absolving you of your sins, and that mean really anything. The only one who has the right to forgive is God, and that's because He's in a position of authority. So if we diminish God's authority somehow, we're actually diminishing the very thing that allows us to be forgiven of our sins, and we need to be really careful about that. So mankind is simply not in a position to do that. So when we think about then the will of God, and, and this, is, this is of course what we're trying to uh, to do is understand the will of God, and, and various passages uh, use that phrase, uh, and that's set over against our own will. I often make the point from Luke 9 and verse 23 that I think that contains, at least for me, the hardest, the most difficult command that's in all of the Bible, where Jesus said, if anyone will come after me, let him, remember what he says, deny himself, take up the cross daily and follow me. Self-denial is the hardest thing for me. 
self keeps getting in the way. And, uh, and I would suspect that's probably the case for all of us. Uh, but rather, the, the attitude that Jesus displayed in the prayer in Matthew 6 and verse 10, your will be done on earth. We'll come back to that a little bit later. Also in Luke 22 and verse 42, as uh, uh, nevertheless not my will but yours be done. And I remind you of what uh, Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21, that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. This is about the will of God. And there may be many people who will say, well, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we perform these wonderful works in your name? And what's Jesus going to say? I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You're acting against and without the will of God. That's what authority is about here. It's about the will of God. It's about understanding the will of God and how God has communicated that will to us. It's also about reconciliation. And this, again, is really the goal of all of this. We want to be reconciled to God. And as we said a moment ago about grace, there could be no reconciliation with God if God Himself, in His authority, in His power, in His will, step out to offer that reconciliation. The problem of sin is such that we're not able in our sin to build that bridge back to God. We can't do it. We're not in a position to be able to do that. That's why it's grace, because God is the one who initiated that. God is the one who made that plan. God is the one who put that plan into effect. And so any reconciliation with God, coming back into fellowship with God, is going to be because God is the one who initiated that and offers it to us. And, of course, to understand then uh, the purpose that we ought to have in pleasing God, and we'll, we'll uh, re, uh, revisit some of these passages a little bit later, but basically what we read in these passages is that our goal, our, our aim is always to please God. 2 Corinthians uh, 5 and verse 9, we make it our aim to be well-pleasing to God. That's, and that's in a context of, of looking out and understanding that there's coming a time when, uh, you know, we're going to meet the Lord and, uh, you know, we're trying to persuade people. We're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, verse 10 says. But we make it our aim to be well-pleasing to God. So what, what all of this is, is really saying up front here is that someone has to be in charge. Uh, and and it, since we're not in a position really to do that, and again, someone might disagree and say, well, I'm in a position to do that. Well, well who, who's going to have that kind of, of uh, presumption to say, I'm the one who gets to tell everybody else what to do. I'm the one who gets to be in charge of, of this religion, of this church, or whatever the case might be. God is the only one in a position to be in charge. So that, that's just kind of a, a fundamental overview, a beginning point. And let me just say, there's a whole lot we're going to say, but there's a whole lot we don't have time to say either. And, uh, and I'll just uh, echo what was said uh, at the beginning. If you have any questions about anything you hear me say or questions about applications or anything like that, please feel free to talk to me about that. Um, I, I appreciate those opportunities. Again, I'm not promising that I have the answer to everything, uh, but uh, we believe we know the one who does have the answer to everything, and we try to humbly submit ourselves to His will. I want you to think about uh, a statement made in Jude 11. When Jude began uh, this epistle, his initial 
idea, he says, was to write about our common faith. But then he says, I found it necessary to write that you need to contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So I wanted to write about our, our common salvation, but you you got you to contend for the faith. Why? Because there are certain men, it says in verse 4, certain persons who've crept in unnoticed and uh, they were long beforehand marked out for condemnation, ungodly persons who, notice, turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So they're turning God's grace into a license to sin, basically. And uh, Paul uh, emphatically denied that in Romans chapter 6. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be. And so we can't use the grace of God as an excuse to sin, uh, but here are some people who are doing just that. And then he talks about their character uh, a little bit in this chapter. When he gets down to verse 11, notice what he says about them. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they've rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of of Korah. So notice that there are three uh, accounts here, three things here that he mentions with regard to those who have gone astray. And I've always been uh, intrigued about that, just looking at these, these characters that he has named and to help us understand uh, kind of the nature of what it means to rebel against the authority of God, because that's what's in common with all three of these particular circumstances. So, for example, the way of Cain really is a distortion of worship uh, where God did not accept the sacrifice of Cain. Now, we're not told specifically why that is in that passage. It would be conjecture for us to, to say this is exactly what it was. Uh, but whatever it was, I do think the, the contrast with Abel is important because Abel offered his sacrifice by faith, and the implication would be that Cain did not somehow, or at least did not follow God's instructions in some way. And so what he did was he offered a sacrifice. He offered something. He offered his grain. But it wasn't what God had asked for. It wasn't what God wanted. He didn't do it by faith. It was a distortion of the worship of God. And you'll find in the prophets that that is a common problem that is addressed, the, the distortion of worship uh, in God. Isaiah chapter 1 would be a good example of that. You know, who, you know you've, you're trampling on my courts. Who's given you this authority? Uh, the idea that, that you go and you offer sacrifice and then you go over here and you do whatever you want to do during the, the rest of the time and you're not really following the commandments of God. But that idea of ritualistic worship or just going through the motions or uh, I, turning God into some form of idolatry, that's a distortion of the worship of God and that's always been a concern. And the way of Cain would be an example of that kind of problem. This, then secondly, you have the error of Balaam, which really is a distortion of teaching, and, and particularly for gain. Um, and in Numbers 22, of course, tells us the story of Balaam. And uh, Balaam was a prophet outside of Israel. God did have spokesmen outside of Israel. Uh, but, but what Balaam's temptation apparently was, was, was to go and, and speak against Israel for pay. Uh, and, and you recall the story how when he did finally go, um, what he said blessed Israel, but it's not because he wanted to. Uh, but the point is that he was willing to distort the teachings of God for pay. And so that's another way to go astray. You can go astray through a distortion of worship. You can go through, astray through a distortion of teaching. And of course, when you look at epistles like uh, the ones to Timothy or Titus, there is a strong concern there 
for sound teaching. The idea that uh, you're teaching the truth and you're paying attention to what you're teaching because only the Word of God can uh, you know, give us what we need to be in order to be adequate and pleasing before Him. And the third uh, point here has to do with the rebellion of Korah, which would be, I would just call it a distortion of the organization of God. Um, in Numbers, the 16th chapter, uh, Korah and a number with him uh, came and challenged Moses directly. And they said, you've taken too much upon yourself. And, and, and really the point Korah was making is, we should be able to be priests also. And what's interesting about that, I think, is that Korah does come from the Levitical family. But you might remember that uh, the family of the priesthood was the family of Aaron. And so even though you're a Levite, that didn't guarantee you would be a priest. Now the Levites would work around the temple and, and all that, but they were not technically the priests. And so you have two chapters in a row, Numbers 16 and Numbers 17 where uh, God demonstrates very clearly His choice of Aaron and his family as the ones who would be the high priest. But basically, when you have someone like Korah coming to Moses and saying to Moses, you, you've taken too much upon yourselves and we think something else ought to be going on here, when all Moses is trying to do is uphold what God had told him to do at that particular point. Here, the organization of God was that Aaron was the high priest and his family, his sons, would be the priests who, who did their job, what they're supposed to do. And you got somebody over here challenging that. And of course, God's answer to Korah was, let's open up the ground and have it swallow you and you will see who's, who's in charge here. The very next chapter was when he had everybody from the tribes uh, take a, a rod or a, a stick and see if it budded, and the one that budded would be uh, the, the priesthood, and that was Aaron's rod. Uh, so God, God is very clear. This is the way I want things done. This is the organization I want uh, for my people at this particular time. And again, we have to be careful. Uh, if, you think, well, if you ask, well, is there any organization uh, to God's people today? There is. It, it's, not, it's not what I would call superstructured. It's not, uh, you know... Uh, some great massive hierarchy or anything like that. It's fairly simple, but it's still there, and uh, we still have to pay attention to that. So uh, authority really is at the core of recognizing right from wrong and truth from error. And so if we're asking, you know, do we need authority uh, for what we do? Uh, it would seem pretty clear in Scripture that since we're not capable of being our own authority and since God is the only one who is capable, then we need Him for that. Do we need authority in our worship to God? Do we need God's permission to act on His behalf? Or can we just call down God's name for anything we decide we want to do and say God should just rubber stamp that? Uh, it's an attitude issue that we're really uh, talking about here. And, and it, it's also interesting to me that it's not just among us where this kind of discussion uh, takes place. In fact, uh, J.I. Packer, who was a well-known uh, fundamentalist, wrote in his book, Fundamentalism and the Word of God, he said, quote, The problem of authority is the most fundamental problem that the Christian church ever faces. This is because Christianity is built on truth, that is to say, the content of a divine revelation. 
And so he argues for the importance of what he calls, quote, the right criterion of truth by which we may tell the Word of God from human error. Now, I would, I would have to say amen to that. That's exactly what it is that we're talking about. He continues, we must expect to find error constantly assailing the truth. Christendom will always be a theological battlefield. Now, we may not like that. You know, we don't like the fact that that's the case, but... but we're warned about that. You remember when Paul went to and talked with the Ephesian elders in Acts the 20th chapter and uh, told them, you know, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace which is able to build you up. But here he is in that context telling them, after my departure, savage wolves will come in and destroy. And even from among your own selves men will arise teaching these perverse things. The warnings are always there. And we always have to be careful about that. Authority is at the core of recognizing these issues. So problems over authority are not unique only to one particular group of people, but everybody would struggle with the fundamental questions about the nature of authority. And so it's fundamental, and it lies at the heart of, of these very questions. So when we talk about authority... Uh, let me just give a, a couple of brief uh, definitions about this and, and a couple of distinctions. Uh, in, in broad terms, authority is thought of as really the power to make or enforce laws, to uh, the power, the ability to command, and to expect obedience or to judge. Uh, now, of course, we understand that, that human authority, which does this, can be abused and sometimes is. Uh, but we're talking here ultimately about God being the one who is the authority. Now, there are really, we could kind of split that down into a couple of different ways of thinking about it. One would be uh, inherent authority, authority that is based on one's position. And again, we understand this, I think. There are people in certain positions that have inherent authority uh, over others uh, because of the position that they're in. For example, parents over their children. Uh, parents have authority and power uh, over their children. Now, they, they can be abused, and sometimes it is. But, you know, we recognize that without authority in the home, things are just going to be chaos. We need uh, some, time, some kind of authority. Teachers in a school uh, would, would have that kind of authority. And we recognize, uh, you know, what, what, what would make, a, say, a policeman have the ability to say, you know, stop uh, in the name of the law or something along those lines. Now again, sometimes that gets abused. But we recognize, technically speaking, we recognize that there is an inherent position that is there that, that they have authority with. But the second kind of authority, and, and, and let me just say about this first of all, the inherent authority, the ultimate inherent authority is always God. Always God. Uh, and again, that's because He is the Creator. And so that inherent authority will always be His. And, but secondly, would be delegated authority, uh, authority that gets passed down to others. Now, in a sense, uh, many positions that have some inherent authority in them are also delegated. Uh, maybe someone goes through training to receive that. Uh, maybe they've gone through school or something else, and then they go into this position where they're given this authority. It's delegated in one sense, but then they hold a position that has some authority. Well, with God, it's ultimate in inherent authority. And everything else down the, down the line gets delegated. Uh, when we talk about having authority to act, really what we're talking about is having permission. Uh, we have permission to act 
in this way. Or maybe think of it as a license. Um, if you're going to drive, uh, you know, to, to keep the law, you're supposed to go get a license, right? And that license then, and you may not ever have to pull it out of your pocket and, you know, then that's fine, but you know you have it. And if you do need it, you've got it to demonstrate right here, I have my license to do this. And so that means I have authority to drive. Uh, I have authority to do, if you travel uh, overseas or something, you have to have a passport. That becomes your authority really to be able to, to go to different countries and so forth. So again, we understand that, that basic concept. A child uh, gets permission uh, to go to the neighbor's house or, or ought to, you know, and if they don't, we get concerned because now we don't know where our child is. There's a reason why we do things the way that we do. But when we talk about authority in terms of our acting religiously, really what we're simply saying is we have permission from God. We have license from God to act in a certain way. That's really all that we're, we're saying by that. And so as we think about that meaning, once again, and, th and this will go back and highlight what we started with, that God has uh, absolute authority. And uh, Jesus is the king and head uh, over all the church, as Colossians 1.18 says. Again, we'll say more about that. His will is expressed in His Word. The Spirit is the revealer of the mind of God. And if we're going to know the will of God, we have to, we have, to have God's Word somehow. And we can't rule ourselves, uh, you know, as, as much as we might like to. Uh, if you think about it, all violation of authority really is the problem of sin. Uh, because what is sin? Sin is a, is a violation really of the glory of God. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I would argue, by the way, that uh, uh, God's glory is the most overarching uh, theme of all of Scripture. Everything done to His glory, as Ephesians 1 uh, talks about. And so when we sin, what really what we're doing is we're trying to take the glory from God to ourselves. Uh, it's as if we're saying, and I think back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 5, when uh, the serpent there tempting uh, Eve says, you know, God knows in the day you eat of this fruit, uh, you'll be like God knowing good and evil. <clears throat> and so she took it and gave to Adam with her and he ate. But that, if I, if I may paraphrase that, would simply be something along these lines. Uh, you don't need God telling you what to do. You can decide for yourself what's right and wrong. You can become your own God. That's essentially what is being taught there by, by the devil. That's the root of all sin. It's us essentially trying to remove God from, from His throne and setting ourselves on that throne and saying we don't need God telling us what to do. But this is exactly why we need authority, because we're not in a position to be able to take God off the throne. And uh, we just can't do that. We're not in that, in that, to have that ability. Now that need is, is illustrated in a number of places uh, in Scripture. And uh, I think you'll recognize kind of the heart of, of most of these and, and think of even more that are not here. But I just want to use a few illustrations. I just mentioned Adam and Eve, uh, an illustration as to why authority uh, is necessary. Because again, uh, what caused that root sin right there was them essentially thinking that by following what the serpent said, oh yeah, uh, we can do this for ourselves, uh, and, it, and it got them into trouble, of course. And of course, you go from eating that 
forbidden fruit in Genesis 3 to Cain and Abel and murder. And uh, once again, just this, you know, that, that kind of started because they're offering their sacrifices. Abel's is accepted. He offers it by faith. Cain, as we talked about a moment ago, uh, did not. Whatever it was, it wasn't what God wanted. And of course, instead of getting upset at himself and then trying to rectify that somehow, uh, he gets mad and he kills his brother uh, as a result of that. Nadab and Abihu, of course, in Leviticus, the 10th chapter, as they went to offer a strange fire before the Lord, which it says he did not command. And so, uh, again, they're trying to, I don't know what was going through their minds, you know, did God, maybe God didn't say not to, and so maybe we can do that. I don't know what they were thinking exactly, but the fact is they were doing what God didn't command them to do, and they were dishonoring God in the process. And so when God put them to death, he told Moses and Aaron, that's exactly why. I will be honored among the people. They were not honoring God. And so again, that illustration, we talked about Korah in number 16. And again, that need to recognize even, and, and see, this is a good example, even going back to Korah with uh, recognizing that something may not be exactly the way I might do it, it may not be exactly the way I might want it if I just said, am I going to do what I want to do? But am I going to listen to God? Am I going to submit myself to His will? And Korah was not willing at that point to do that. Moses himself, uh, you recall uh, in Numbers 20, uh, when he went to uh, try to get water out of the rock the second time and you know, shall we bring forth water from the rock? And he strikes it and so forth. God was not happy with him because that he didn't do what God had told him to do. And uh, he spoke presumptuously and he acted presumptuously. And God said, as a result of that, you're not going to take the people over into the promised land. Even the leaders among God's people can act inappropriately like that. Uh, everybody needs authority. And that's why we, everybody has to be careful. And uh, David and the new cart, and we could, you know, think about uh, uh, when, when uh, David was trying to get the, the Ark of the Covenant and uh, move it, uh, that uh, he built a new cart for it, and as the you know, oxen were taking it along, they stumbled, and cart, the Ark began to tip, and, you know, I mean, it, it's a mess. And you can see how bad that can get. In, in several of these cases, death as a result of the violation of the will of God. I want to illustrate again, coming, let's turn to Matthew 21 in the New Testament. Again, there's, there's, you could think of a lot more examples, I think, of uh, the violation of the authority of God and why that becomes so significant. Matthew 21 Jesus entered the temple, and the chief priests and the elders of the people came, and as he was teaching, and they asked him the question, by what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? That's a pretty good question. You know, and, and you can understand from their perspective, here's this guy from Galilee coming in here and doing these things. Who does he think he is? So they're just directly asking him, by what authority do you do these things? And Jesus says, well, I'll ask you a question. And if you tell me the answer, I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Baptism of John, was it from heaven or men? 
Now, right there, Jesus really gave the two sources of authority. It's either going to be heaven or men. It's going to be God or other people. And, uh, there's, you know, there's really nowhere else to go with this. Uh, and, uh, of course, they didn't want to answer because if they said, well, his, John's baptism was from heaven, then he's going to say, well, why didn't you believe him? Because John pointed to me. And if they say, well, it's from men, well, they feared the people because the people thought John was a prophet. So it, it put them in a bit of a pickle. Jesus in Mark, uh, Luke chapter 6 and verse 46, rather, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? That corresponds really to Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Or John 8, 31 and 32, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Uh, again, abiding in the word. What is it that that delineates true disciples of Jesus Christ. They abide in His Word. Now, in the book of John, that's really significant because Jesus has defined not only He Himself is the Word, as the first chapter demonstrates, but He's already given that discourse in John 6 about the bread of life and the fact that it's the Spirit who gives life, and it's the Word that He's speaking that gives life. And that's when Peter, you know, had made that point, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we've come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. If you abide in my word, and Jesus has defined that as something that the Holy Spirit had revealed uh, through him. John 12 and verse 48, he who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him in the last day. Uh, so how important uh, is the Word of God here? How important is it to abide in the Word of the Lord Himself? If, if that Word is going to be there with us on the day of judgment and judge us if we have rejected it, if we have uh, gone outside of that. And, and really what we're trying to say in this uh, session here is simply the idea that everyone listens to someone's authority. You know, I, I mean, I've heard people say, well, I just, you know, I'm not going to worry about authority. Well, everybody listens to somebody's authority. It might even be your own. If you reject God's authority and you say, I'm going to reject other authority, then really what you're doing is saying, I'm the authority. And, and so you're, you're not going to escape this. There's no escaping the fact that everybody listens to somebody's authority. And so if we reject God's, well, who gets to have the say then? You? Me? Do we just get a bunch of people and get a bunch of power and then say, you know, we're, we're going to force this on you? Well, God's people ought not to act that way, certainly. As Jesus told His own disciples, you know, you're not going to lord it over each other. That's not the way it works in the kingdom of God. God has authority over your salvation. Uh, there's no being saved without God's approval. And as we've already made this point, God, grace can only come from one who has the power to give it, and God is the one who does that, and God has told us how to be reconciled to Him. So we end this first session simply by thinking about uh, the broad overview of that great need that we have to listen to the authority of God. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more next session about uh, uh, the kingship of Jesus and following His example, what that means, and uh, Lord willing, tomorrow night we'll talk a little bit more about that process of understanding God's authority and uh, think about reasoning from the Scriptures and, and how that works. And uh, 
Saturday morning talk a little bit more about uh, God's people and and uh, I want to end all this by talking a little bit about instrumental music uh, because I think it presents to us a good case study uh, for understanding some of these issues and to think uh, about the importance of what it means ourselves uh, to be doing the will of God as we worship Him. So we'll, we'll conclude with all of that. And again, if you have any questions, uh, please feel free to uh, let me know. But we'll stop right here for a few minutes. <laughs>